quiet residential neighborhood in Nashville, Tennessee, the people of St. Andrew's Anglican Church carry on the faith of Jesus Christ as their forebears have for generations. Central to their life is the proclamation of the gospel and the celebration of the sacraments. Let's join their priest, Father Jim Gwill, as he stands beside the Southern Cross. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Amen. Many of us, of us admire C.S. Lewis, the great British scholar and Christian apologist who died 44 years ago this coming Wednesday. For part of his adult life, he didn't believe in God at all. In part under the influence of J.R.R. Tolkien, he became a Christian. He wrote books that have fed our faith. We love his Narnia stories, some of which have been even made into films. Lewis had his own struggles with faith. We saw that in the movie of several years ago, Shadowlands. Somewhat late in life, he fell in love and married an American poet, Joy Davidman. After only four short years, she died of cancer. Lewis struggled greatly in his faith. He recorded his thoughts in a diary and published them as a grief observed. He says in the book that he does not worry that he will go back to being an atheist. He knows he will continue to believe in God. He worries rather that he will believe terrible things about God. Quote, sooner or later I must face the question in plain language. What reason have we, except our own desperate wishes, believe that God is, by any standard we can conceive, good? Doesn't all prima facie evidence suggest exactly the opposite? End quote. Lewis writes very dark words about God in his grief diary, words that come from a committed Christian. In our parable for this morning, one character has a dark opinion about the property owner. The property owner represents Jesus and so some aspect of God. The parable tells a simple story. A rich man goes on a journey. He divides up the property among his servants. He doesn't split things up evenly. He gives one servant five talents, one servant two, the third servant only one talent. Let's clarify. These talents represent a lot of money, perhaps 15 years' wages apiece. The one who received five talents got more than he could spend in a lifetime if the money were his. In any case, after divvying up the money, the rich man goes on a journey. The first two slaves watched Susie Orman and Jim Cramer on TV, so they invest the talents. They pick a good IPO and double their money. The third slave doesn't trust the system. He looks at all this with a skeptical eye. Apparently, as an act of spite, he buries his coin in the ground. He doesn't even earn simple interest. The rich man returns from his journey. He lavishes praise on the first two servants. They have done well. They join the rich man in his party, his celebration. The parable puts the real focus on the third servant. His conversation with the rich man lasts the longest. The third servant challenges the rich man, quote, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed, end quote. Doesn't the servant sound like the psalmist, accusing God of forgetting about people? Doesn't the servant sound like Lewis, accusing God of cruelty? In effect, the servant says to the rich man, quote, You're mean and you don't deserve all you have, end quote. These words point the accusing finger at Jesus and by implication at God. 
The parable has certain characteristics of allegory in it. Parts of the parable stand for some aspect of faith, of understanding our faith. The long journey represents our feeling that we are here on our own, dealing with the evil of the world. Jesus' return has run into a delay. God has not redeemed creation yet. God has not eliminated suffering and grief, pain and cruelty. God gives unequal amounts to the three servants. One servant receives five talents, one two, and the third only one for a total of eight. A math major might have divided things up differently. With eight talents to give, a math major might have given two and two-thirds talents to each servant. That is only fair, isn't it? Does God treat us unfairly? If we cannot go that far, we can say that life treats us unfairly. Some people enjoy perfect health for most of their lives. Others struggle with injury or illness for years. Some people grow up in happy homes. Others grow up with abuse. We all appreciate the service of our veterans, but did you know that homeless veterans are more likely to die on the street alone than any other homeless people? Life can seem cruel. We can look at life, our own life, or the lives of others, and the anger just wells up inside us. How can Jesus stay away on this journey? Why do some people get so much and others not enough? Why is life so unfair? Even though the parable doesn't say this outright, we should not feel ashamed when we experience anger at life or even at God. The key is not to stay there. We must work through the anger. We must hang in there with God even in the face of life's injustice. We do not ignore injustice. We do not allow it to destroy our faith. Chapter 25 is Matthew's mission statement for the church. It starts with a parable of the bridesmaids. If you know that parable, you know that the bridegroom takes a long time to get to the big party after the wedding. The smart bridesmaids have enough oil to last for the delay. The delay is where the church finds itself between the resurrection and the full coming of the dominion of heaven. The oil is everything we do in the church. We need a full supply of oil to keep doing what we do. The parable we read today forms part of Matthew's mission statement and adds to the parable of the bridesmaids by teaching us something about what it means to have enough oil. In chapter 25, Matthew gives the church the mission of continuing his ministry, even in the uncertainty of life, even if Jesus' return is delayed. As do many of the parables in Matthew, this one has an unhappy ending. The slave with the one talent loses everything and is cast out. He is like the man without the wedding garment who was thrown out of the banquet in an earlier chapter of this gospel. He is like the foolish bridesmaids who do not have enough oil. But what would a happy ending be for this parable? A happy ending would be for the slave to see his one talent as the gift of the rich man, according to his own talent, so to speak. It was not as much the gifts of the other two slaves received, but it was something. He could have worked through his resentment and reacted in hope and gratitude. A happy ending for us would be to work through whatever anger and resentment we have and work for the church, looking for God's redemption in creation. <clears throat> in the parable, the rich man comes back. He holds a great celebration. The servants who trusted, who maintained faith, join in the celebration. Life and the resurrection will be a celebration as well. If we find ourselves angry at life or even at God, let us work through that anger to the faith on the other side. The rich man will return. The celebration will begin. If life seems to have given us only one coin, 
others seem to have more, let us remember that even one coin is a down payment, the abundance that awaits us in God's celebration. Thanks be to God. Now the words of my mouth, meditations of our hearts, be always accept on your side, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen.